Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Monday. It is Monday, which means it's time for the front three, a front three today. It's me, Adam Boltwood. It's Chris Hennage. Evening. And Nico Morales as well. You always sound so excited that I'm here, Adam. I am. I'm incredibly excited that you're here to talk to us about uh, a very exciting weekend of international football. I'm sure everyone out there will agree. We're going to be talking through some of the games, uh, the friendlies, the World Cup playoffs, of course, as well. Uh, we'll also be answering your questions, tackling some of the other news outside of international football as well. But we probably should start with England, Chris. Friday, we'll talk about this briefly. Nil-nil draw with Germany. A lot of talk before the game about how this is one of the worst England teams in decades. Uh, a lot of young players in the likes of Harry Maguire, Eric Dyer as the captain, uh, Jamie Vardy started up front alongside Tammy Abraham, uh, Ruben Loftus-Cheek as well being given a chance in this team. Uh, after the game though, uh, it turns out Ruben Loftus-Cheek is better than Zidane. Uh, Jordan Pickford is the new Gordon Banks. It was an encouraging performance from some youth players. Uh, a lot of credit being given to Gareth Southgate for giving these players a chance, Chris. But has this not almost been forced upon him, given the injuries and absentees in this squad? Or should we be giving him praise for this philosophy of bringing through the young players and, and giving them a chance to shine? Uh, I think both statements can be true. I, I think... <clears throat> He has tried to include younger players. He's brought Angus Gunn in, who, uh, from what I've seen in the Championship, is, is a very good goalkeeper. Um, and, and Cook as well. It's it's The important thing is, I see a lot of people, specifically with Cook, railing against the fact he hasn't played a lot for Bournemouth. But I think what he is about is giving chances to those who succeed at, at the lower levels of, of English, uh, of the English youth. <laughs> of the English national team, excuse me. So he was very good for the under-20s, so now he's promoted. And I think if you can give them, and Southgate touched on this, if you can give the likes of Loftus-Cheek a chance in a game that doesn't necessarily have anything riding on it other than pride, that can give them the perfect platform to show what kind of player they are without fear of repercussion. And I think, yeah, this is perhaps a situation that will frustrate you know, and not to say that he deserves a call-up, but players like Mark Noble, for example, who think that maybe that's their chance to get in. Um, but I think ultimately you need to keep your pool of players as fresh and 
almost well understood as possible in terms of you know what they can bring, you know what they can offer. And I think if there's anything you take from that game in Germany, it's not so much that, that Abraham is a good forward or anything like that. It's that Ruben Loftus-Cheek actually offers us a skill set that I don't think a lot of English midfielders have at this precise moment, or at least not at the top level. Hmm. He was definitely uh, the player who impressed the most. Um, it was interesting after the game, Loftus-Cheek's father came out and sort of said, Jose Mourinho held him back. You know, he should have been playing at Chelsea. Uh, he suggested Loftus-Cheek's father that if, say, Mauricio Pochettino had been the manager when his son was at Chelsea, he would have had 70, 80, 90 first-team appearances. Loftus-Cheek's father saying that has clearly inspired Ben Davies to ask on Twitter, would Ruben Loftus-Cheek be a regular for Chelsea if their manager was Pochettino, Chris? Um, it's interesting because when I watched him, you know, it was largely cup games and things like that and one-offs, and, and he didn't seem the greatest of fit for that Chelsea team because he wasn't able to to carry the ball in the same way that I think he does for Palace. Um, and he looked a bit awkward. I, I think, I think. look, it's, it's it's easy to say now that he's a great player in these things. It, it didn't necessarily present itself in the, albeit brief, exposure he had to the first team. I think what you've got to accept at the same time is that Jose Mourinho really isn't known for bringing through youth. He can quote these 49 players all he wants, but a lot of those are minute appearances. Um, for me, Davide Santon at, at Inter Milan is, is a rare uh, exception to, to what is otherwise a rule in this case. And I think that if I was a Chelsea player like him or, or Shalaba, I'd be looking at the situation and saying, you know what, have I made the best decisions for my career at this point? Because Shalaba's had to leave altogether, whereas Loftus-Cheek... You know, has just gone on loan to, to Palace to get his chance. Chelsea will potentially benefit. I mean, I'm not too sure how they fit Kante, Bakayoko, Fabregas, Drinkwater, and then Loftus-Cheek in together come next summer. I would imagine Fabregas will, will probably go. But you've just spent, what is it, 34, 35 million or something like that on Drinkwater? I think overall, yeah, he deserves more chances. But at the same time, Chelsea need to refine that process for me because they've got... A fantastic record in the Youth Cup. I, th- I want to say something like they've contested seven of the last eight and they've won six of the last eight Youth Cup finals. And yet, I don't think we're seeing that imprinted on the first team quite yet. And that's something they need to fix. And I think the success that Loftus-Cheek has found is a good indicator of, of that being true. Mm, it was quite interesting to see the comparison between uh, the two sides that both England and Germany put out on Friday night. They're broadly similar in ages. Um, between the two squads, but the amount of first-team appearances for top-level sides, I think it was something like double or triple for the German players compared to the English players. So it's quite clear uh, from that comparison, you can see where the issue is. Uh, England playing Tuesday night against Brazil in another friendly game. Uh, Brazil side in fine form, of course, but with Neymar, the main talking point, as always, uh, surrounding this side, uh, gave somewhat of a, a tearful press conference early in the week, defended by his manager, uh, Tite, uh, the Brazilian national manager, um, sort of coming out to say, uh, people are saying that he's had a problem with the player. He's sick of hearing that. He tried to defend uh, the player's personality and character. It's quite strange to see Neymar in tears next to him, um, sort of exiting quite hurriedly from the press conference. But... Uh, 
there is a lot of spotlight on Neymar at the moment. It wasn't only the manager defending him, it was also Kylian Mbappe, uh, Julian Draxler as well, his PSG teammates coming out with quotes. Uh, Mbappe saying Neymar's human, you know, he's got two arms, he's got two legs, he's got a heart, which, you know, humans need those. Um, he does seem to get a hard time, Neymar though, Nico. Um, but at the same time, is this not what you should expect? The spotlight, the over-analysis of everything he does, that is something that comes with being the most expensive player of all time one of the biggest names in sport generally in the world is it slightly worrying perhaps that he's showing signs that he can't cope with that intense pressure uh i wouldn't say so uh i would say maybe to you know when you ask the question should he expect that i think yes there is a certain level of expectation that one can have being in the position that Neymar is in. But at the same time, I, I, I sort of sympathize with the player in the sense that, um, you know, I'm not too familiar with the situation that made him uh, express his emotions in such a uh, in such a way. But I think I can definitely understand that, you know, just even some of the stuff that people offhandedly say about players, whether it be in the stadium or, or that certain people write about them or that certain people say about them on Twitter. I mean, there is the possibility and often the probability that some of these players see those things. And I think, you know, for a guy that, in my opinion, every interview that I've watched, and I, I know Neymar as well as you know Neymar and, and really that anybody that is listening to this podcast unless they've met him uh, knows Neymar. And to my to my eye, it looks like he's just a guy that genuinely loves playing football and is very good at doing that. And I think to accrue such serious and consistent and, I don't know, um, almost hateful criticism for the economic situation that he finds himself in because of a particular skill set that he has is something that I think is a little sad because, like I said, I think the you know the feeling that i get when i see neymar and a lot of the when he not only that not only in press conferences and stuff like that but when he plays football is that he's just a kid from brazil that likes to play football and he's still very young and so to like i said to have accrued such criticism because of his move to psg and his move away from barcelona and everything that people have said is i think uh, harsh on a guy that you know he's just trying to play football and he's just trying to enjoy his situation as someone that plays football professionally so i i can understand um to as much as I, as well as i can understand the situation uh that he's going through and and you know i i hope that he comes out of it okay and i think um you know it's more than fine to express your emotions in in that manner and i hope he he gets through this the reason he seemed to be upset this was, of course, post-Brazil's uh, friendly with Japan, which they won 3-1. Neymar scored one goal, missed a penalty there as well. But in the, the post-match press conference, he seemed to be taking exception with the press specifically. There was a story earlier in the week, um, instantly from the same journalist who broke the story that he was going to move to PSG in the summer, that Neymar actually regrets his move to PSG, that he could be looking to move clubs again uh, next summer, potentially. Um he sort of said these stories are made up. He has no issue with Cavani. He's loving his time at PSG. He's, he's no qualms with, with moving to the club, which does lead to the question from Michal Pizinski on Twitter. He says, do we think Neymar, Neymar will be moving again next summer? Uh, there are reports of him being unhappy, as he says, by the same report who broke the story about his PSG move. Do you think it is uh, potentially feasible he could move again next summer, Nico? Some suggesting Real Madrid could be in for him which would be pretty uh, pretty ridiculous. 
I think it's definitely feasible. Like, like I mentioned sort of in the summer, I think this, you know, of, of the conspiracies that we've come up with in the past or that maybe that I've come up with, you know, that, that could be a route for him because, uh, as he's mentioned in a lot of interviews, his childhood hero was Ronaldo. And maybe, you know, he has the desire to play for Real Madrid. Not that that is, I think in any way sort of disrespectful to, to Barcelona, but I think, you know, it's definitely a possibility, but, you know, like I was saying before, you, you mentioned the circumstances in which, um, you know, made him upset in that situation. And I mean, you know, just kind of put yourself in the shoes of Neymar where, you know, one situation where, you know, we're talking about the situation uh, between him and Cavani and the penalty, which is a relatively, you know, in sport, if you've ever been on a sports team, specifically a, a football or soccer team, you know, it's a relatively common situation. You know, you're going to argue about taking free kicks. You're going to argue about taking corners and penalties. And for everyone to be making such a, a big deal, you know, what does this mean for PSG? What does this mean for their title challenge? What does it say about Neymar and his ego for people to, and this, I think I'm guilty of this, of this as well, um, for people to extrapolate such uh, grand, like, character criticisms about Neymar and about his teammates and about his situation um, based off so little of what we know about the player, I think can definitely, you know, evoke these sort of responses. So once again, I, I, I empathize with the player and I, I, I think I can understand where he's coming from. Uh, let's talk about the actual playoffs then. Uh, enough of England and friendlies and stuff doesn't really matter. Uh, Croatia have qualified for the World Cup comfortably in the end, a 4-1 aggregate win over Greece. Switzerland as well, progressing to the finals. They beat Northern Ireland 1-0. That controversial penalty in the first leg in the end, proving decisive over the two games uh, with Michael O'Neill's side giving a spirited performance, but just wasn't enough to see them through, unfortunately. Um, a lot of praise, though, for O'Neill, Chris, and what he's done there. I think they were 80th or so in the world rankings when he joined uh, six years ago. They hadn't played in a major international tournament for 30-odd years, yet now they're ranked 20th or so, I believe. Uh, they've got to last 16, of course, in Euro 2016. They've now just missed out on the World Cup. He was coy on his future after the game against Switzerland, after the defeat. Um, but it will be interesting to see if potentially he moves into club management or, if rumour has it, uh, the US make an approach for him. Yeah, I think I think you know he's done a very good job um, with a squad that is limited in certain aspects, with the greatest uh, uh, intentions. I think you have to look at the fact that Kyle Lafferty is, is you know, their their main attacking threat up top. Um, Josh McGuinness was formerly a goalkeeper um, in his professional career and is now a forward. So I wouldn't say it has a as maybe stronger foundation as as for comparison's sake, the Republic of Ireland, which. I think um, even then relies on the likes of Daryl Murphy in the championship as it's leading forward and, and Shane Long, who's not in the greatest of goal-scoring form. So I think there's deficiencies in that Northern Ireland squad. I've watched, I watched both legs. I thought the f if they'd approached maybe the, f the home tie like they did the away one, they might have found a bit more joy. Um, I think they've got every right to be frustrated at the way they went out because, for me, that's not a penalty on, on Corey Evans at all. Um, it's a poor decision that I think is heavily influenced by the fact that, that Granite Xhaka called for it and has stood right next to the referee as he does so. Um, but yeah, I think he, he set a very good foundation. And I think what I can, can see when I look at Northern Ireland is they've made the most of, of dual nationals. Um, you know, the, yes, there are people like Johnny Evans and uh, Chris Brunton who were obviously Northern Irish born and raised. But I think 
if you you look at you know uh, guys like George Savile, for example, Ollie Norwood, those are, uh, are players that were born in England but qualified for Northern Ireland, and and they add something a little bit different to the squad. Norwood, in particular, is a, is a player I quite like, and I think if they could get one or two extra pieces in that final third, um, I think they'd be even better than they are already. But you you can't ignore the influence that O'Neill's had in that development because I think they've they've become a very good um, stern side without being really horrible to watch at the same time, which is, is often two things, I think, that, that can go hand-in-hand hand at international level. Hmm. Certainly will be interesting to see what he does um, if the US men's national team do indeed make an approach. There has been a certain degree of soul-searching in the, the post-mortem since the US uh, failed to qualify for the UK the World Cup themselves. Uh, there was actually an inter- interesting article today, was there not, Chris, by Christian Pulisic on the Players' Tribune talking about that very failure? Yeah, it, it was actually it was a really nice piece, um, kind of interspersed with a little bit of uh, personal anecdote, you know, him watching the, the 2014 World Cup when he was very much a kid. I mean, he's still incredibly young now, but you, you get the point. Um I think a lot of what he says is is true. I think that that MLS has become a, a younger league in recent years, especially when it comes to its designated players. But now is the point where you have to start trusting kids. Um, I don't think that's the only top league that has that issue. If I'm if I'm honest, I think the Premier League is is in a similar predicament right now, where um, law the matter agree with Tim Sherwood, but his recent argument that you know if, if Renato Sanchez um, excuse me, if a player from Swansea's academy played at the level that Renato Sanchez has since his loan move, he wouldn't get many chances in the first team. And I think that's true, is that we have to, to trust young players. I mean, you look at Deli Ali, arguably one of the best English players. He was playing in, in League One, and I think that helped elevate his game so significantly because of the continuity and consistency that that provided him. Um, and so, yeah, I, th- I think... Pulisic makes a lot of good points. He's he's going to be massive for that country's future from a footballing standpoint, irrespective of of where he goes um, in his club career, be it with Dortmund or whatever. Um, and I think realistically, the the key is now to introduce some of those players alongside him. The likes of Weston McKinney uh, at Schalke is a great example, and then even those who are probably a few further rungs down, someone like Keaton Parks, who's who's with Benfica B. Um, that's someone that needs to now be put into the system and and given a path to the first team and and nurture his development, if you will, so that it's not just Pulisic leading the way. I think it's strengthening numbers on this one. It's certainly an interesting situation uh, that the US soccer scene sort of finds itself in. There's obviously now the US soccer presidential elections underway as well. Uh, The game in the US with the national team now without a competitive fixture for two years. It seems at a crossroads now, Nico, given that failure to qualify for the World Cup. Yeah, I mean, I think with any... um... The, the, the difficulty sorry about quantifying uh, the success of a national team, I think, um, is one that we struggle with today because of there, there's such a limited spectrum as to which we can sort of, uh, like I said, quantify the success of a national team. There's such a limited amount of time in which we can say, OK, this team was successful because of this, this and that. And, you know, there's very there's a very 
uh, small amount of space in which we consider certain teams successful. And even then, uh, some of those teams can not necessarily be doing the right things and still up, still end up in the right situations. And so, you know, as you've mentioned, the, the postmortem after uh, the you know United States did not qualify for this year this year's World Cup, which I'm not suggesting in any way is a good thing. Um, I think there's a lot of criticism that maybe people wouldn't have said anything beforehand um, had this not have happened. And, and, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, you beat them with the same stick that you might praise them for uh, if things in a specific game, which don't necessarily affect the overall uh, idea, uh, have anything to do with. But, you know, in terms of where it's all going, uh, I think getting rid of Bruce Arena was a good step. But, the, the unique thing about the American soccer landscape is that I think the United States in terms of soccer development and football development is faces a, a situation that no really no other country, especially the, the dominant sort of European football powers, can relate to. Because the, the I think the biggest issue that people tend to land on with U.S. soccer is youth development. And the, the hurdle that the United States faces in that sort of category um, is within the relative size of the United States. There is no nation that has been, uh, you know, as successful really in Europe or really anywhere else that is of a similar size of the United States. And that's really part of the problem. That's where people tend to, to, to land their criticism is that there are too many kids falling through the gaps. And so I don't have an answer as to how the United States can fix that problem. And I think not a lot of people do. But one thing that I think is telling about sort of the the politics of, of a lot of these, uh, you know, as we've seen the, the corrupt politics of UEFA and FIFA is that, you know, obviously there's a lot of discontent with Suno Galati and, and they're having re-elections in, in, uh, for those sort of positions. And no one, even after, you know, the, this dire U.S. situation uh, has, or I think it was only one of the, the panel came out and said that uh, that they feel that his time should be up. And I think, it's those sort of situations where people at the top don't really feel that the that the you know certain positions should be changed. Um, that's wrong. They must be benefiting in some way, shape, or form, and that sort of affects all of this these other criticisms that people are talking about. You know, the youth development and how the United States comes together and does certain things for the success of U.S. soccer development. So I think there's a, there's a lot of issues uh, within U.S. soccer that are very difficult to analyze because of the unique situation that U.S. soccer finds itself in. And, and I think it's, it's just kind of a mess. So, you know. Another team who are on the verge of not qualifying are, of course, Italy. Uh, they lost 1-0 to Sweden in their first leg of their playoff tie. The second leg is coming up this evening. Uh, Italy on the verge of an absolute disaster here. Uh, the four-time champions need a big big performance at the San Siro this evening. Um, do they have it in them is the question though, Nico. A lot of criticism for the uh, for the national coach, Gian Piero Ventura, um, and some suggesting that uh, they might not make it. They might not overturn this 1-0 deficit. Yeah, they might not. Um, and so there's there's a lot of there's a lot to this Italy equation. I'll try to try to explain this better than I did the the American situation. Um, and I've written some some things down, so I'll try to get through all of that uh, in a clear and concise manner. So I think uh, when I watched the first game, uh, Italy versus Sweden, a few days ago, um, the idea that or the 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 thing that struck me was that in a sense there was nothing wrong with with the way that Italy sort of approached the game because I think. 
maybe not approach the game, but the way that they played. Because I think for me, as I've become familiar with Italy over the international competitions, they are a team that has focused around a, a consistent tactical idea, which tends to be defensive, and it tends to focus on a core group of players. Bonucci, Buffon, sort of that Juventus core. And they've been relatively successful with that. They did re, uh, relatively well at, at Euro 2016. And I think the problem with that sort of more defensive approach is that the the issues arise earlier on in the, in the competitions of the, or the stage of the qualifica- qualification because the the... I guess the the focus of the tactical idea is defensive. And so when you have to break teams down, when you have to be a little bit more offensive, then you can encounter problems against teams that a lot of people call, uh, you know, uh, agree that you should be beating. And I think Sweden came at them with a very concise tactical idea that was meant to to sort of um, break that down in a sense, because they asked a lot of them of how they could sort of uh, play out of the back and play out of high pressure situations and realistically Italy aren't that great at doing that especially at the international level where a lot of these players aren't that familiar with one another so I think in that sense um, there is a lot of sort of overreaction with the the results that Italy is facing right now obviously if they don't qualify for the World Cup that will be a major issue and in that sense there should be criticism for the approach that Ventura has taken but I think if we look at some of the the teams that have taken a defensive approach in 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 recent international competitions like Portugal, they struggled very early on in the competition because the idea that they were going for was not one that was meant to really break down teams and, and go after them. It was more of a centered approach of the teams that they were, they, you know, the big dogs, they, they wanted to play good against teams that were similar in quality. And I think that's what this Italy team is focused on. Maybe they're not focusing enough on, on the teams that they need to get past to, to go to the World Cup. But I think there is a bit of an overreaction when it comes to the analysis of Italy and you know the breakdown of Italian football and all this stuff. And specifically, you know the, the xenophobic comments that some people were making on Twitter uh, in the past few days saying that you know if, if Italy doesn't qualify for the World Cup, then all foreigners should be banned from Serie A. And that is, you know, that was that's what was done at this wow. certain period of time. And yeah, it, it's pretty incredible. And I think there's so much to, to sort of break that down and to really kind of destroy that argument because it's a, it's a, honestly a ridiculous one. But I think, um, you know, the, the, if you look at the way that uh, Germany in, in Das Reboot, the, the book that Raphael Honigstein wrote about the, the way that Germany restructured their sort of youth development, there are a lot of elements to it that incorporated uh, certain elements of, of bringing, you know, immigrant groups that had immigrated to, to Germany and having them part of the USEP set up, there's, there's sort of uh, a focus on how they coach certain players. So it, it has a lot more to do than just like banning foreigners, which is just the most ridiculous situation uh, and the most ridiculous solution that you can come up with, with for a, a, a problem like that. Because I think it's, it's doing exactly what history has taught us, what people tend to do, which isn't correct, which is when anything goes wrong in any situation, the first group of people that tend to be blamed and tend to be scapegoated is foreigners. Um, and that obviously isn't correct. So, you know, there's a lot to this Italy situation. But like I said, I think it was more about certain tactical ideas and 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 going with a defensive approach and that brought up these ideas of people saying that this is the downfall of you know uh italian football development and then all this other stuff happens so it's it's a very interesting thing and a very interesting dynamic that international football brings about 
Obviously, a lot of critics for the coach Ventura, also the Italian Football Federation for hiring him in the first place and generally how they're running the game in Italy. But I've seen another theory that the older golden generation, if you will, the likes of De Rossi, Chiellini, Buffon, who are nearing the end of their careers, at the end of the day, the younger players in this Italy side simply aren't good enough to be passed the torch from these footballing legends, Chris. Does that does that hold water for you? Oh, sorry about that. I thought I was on mute. Um... No, I don't think so. I, th- I think look, the, the foundation of the team is uh, is is very solid. I, th- I think genuinely, it's it's a case of, and I'm I know it's rare that we lump on a manager this much. I do think it's it's Ventura's ideas. I mean, he brought uh, Insigne on, having started him on the bench, which is farcical when you think how good Napoli are this season, um, and even uh, Insigne himself kind of scoffed at the fact there was there was footage surfaced of him kind of you know a bit aghast at the fact he was playing centrally um so it's it's moments like that like to me like that's a microcosm for what's wrong with Italy at the minute is that their coach is terrible you look at his his CV yes he's got a lot of experience but he's done next to nothing um as a manager or achieved nothing as a manager in my eyes and then you know, you look higher up the structure, the fact that Tavecchio has a fairly senior position despite being um, a complete and utter nugget, for want of a more poetic phrase. Uh, it, it makes you think that, that actually, and I, and I had this debate with the, the chap that Nico referenced before who wanted to, to potentially ban foreigners. Italy needs a revolution, not a regression. And I think if you're wanting to remove old heads from that national team you don't need to be looking on the pitch you need to be looking squarely off I, I would contest that insignia point but please do um, yeah what, Let, let's let's say you argue that a Napoli player doesn't know where he should be playing on the pitch <laughs> well well but that's the thing so I was watching um, an interview maybe not an interview it was it was more of an appearance that a player had made on a French football show it was Samuel Eto'o um, and he spoke about his time under Pep Guardiola and how he felt he had been disrespected. And um, he told different stories about, you know, that weren't very complimentary of, of Pep Guardiola and his treatment of Samuel Eto'o at Barcelona. But I think um, in that sense, you know, you mentioned that maybe the footage of Lorenzo Antonio looking at where he's going to be played in the Italian national team and, uh, you know, scoffing at that fact and not liking it. And I think that's exactly uh, the sort of attitude that is not necessarily becoming of a professional because, and the reason I mentioned the, the Samuel Eto'o uh, interview was because, you know, he didn't want to listen to Guardiola about the movements that he should be making off the ball. And he said, you know, you were never a great player. So why should you be telling me about uh, the movement off the ball? And it's that kind of situation that, or it's that, it's that kind of attitude that some professional players still have today that, you know, if their coach wasn't a great player, if their coach didn't command a certain amount of respect, then they're simply not going to listen to them. And I think that's the kind of the player that certain coaches don't want to work with. And we hear these rumblings and different sides of the, the story that, you know, that are, are unclear. And ultimately I think that's the kind of attitude that holds, uh, teams back I think that holds players back and I think that holds coaches back and I think the the criticism of Lorenzo Insigne previous to his 
stellar performances in the last two years at Napoli was that he often did leave his uh, you know other teammates on an island defensively because he wasn't willing to do any defensive work. Now Ventura was appointed last summer and he has had the opportunity to work with Lorenzo Insigne uh, in the past, and so if he's worked with him a number of times, and the player is really probably only willing to do enough or what Ventura is deeming enough defensive work um, when he's playing under Maurizio Sarri or at his club team, then I think I can understand why Ventura would put Lorenzo Insigne on the bench. And I think, like I said before, I'm not specifically criticizing Ventura's tactics. I think he's going for a consistent tactical idea, which I'm sure the listeners are, are sick and tired of uh, hearing me say, but I think it's the most important thing that a, that a national team manager can do is going into a tournament with a consistent tactical idea. And, and we look at, I think the way that we look at sort of national team selection because of the nature of it is a little bit archaic. And I think at the, at the very top level with England, with Italy, with Germany, with these teams that have uh, a plethora of talent to choose from, um, you know, we look at it as sort of, well, if you're in really good form, then you deserve to be in the national team because it's something by merit. And I don't think at the very top level, that's how we should be thinking about it. Because if you're Lorenzo Insigne and you're not doing enough defensive work, and maybe he was trying to overcompensate that by playing him centrally, by playing him in a position that he doesn't put the rest of the team at risk when he's trying to enact a, a defensive strategy, then I can certainly understand why the why the coach didn't pick him, regardless of his form with Napoli. They're playing two different two completely different styles. Italy play nothing like Napoli play. So why would you play a player that is going to disrupt and make the team worse in those situations? Jean-Pierre Ventura's agent there. <laughs> he's putting good, uh, he's put forward a good case for his, uh, for his client, for sure. Um, we'll move on from Italy because there's also uh, another playoff. This is happening on Tuesday night. Um, one final decider up in the air is, is, of course, Republic of Ireland against Denmark. Uh, the first leg of which finished nil-nil. Um, wasn't exactly champagne football, Chris. Uh, the Irish journalist Dion Fanning of Sports Show described it as Ireland not just setting out to wear Denmark down, but to crush any affection they might still have for football itself. Um, it's not a game that is uh, is going to be a, a classic that we're going to rewatch years from now, but the fact is Ireland are still in the tie. They go into this on Tuesday night playing in Dublin um, with the home advantage, of course. Um, who's your money on to go through? Is it Ireland or Denmark? I've really agonised over this one. I don't think there'll be a plethora of goals, let's put it that way, um, because the Croatia-Greece first leg is pretty much accounting for the majority of the goals that have been scored in these playoffs. And I think if you were nervous in the first leg, you're just as likely to be nervous in the second leg because if you're the home team and a way goal counts twice, obviously. Um, I hate to say it, but I have a sneaking suspicion that Denmark could ruin the party. Ooh, okay, interesting. Hopefully, I, not, I, have, hopefully a, not. I have a bad feeling it'll be 1-0 either way. Mm. Um, Ireland aren't huge scorers at home unless they're against a minnow nation. And I think... I mean, this is this is the thing as well. A lot of it is is a lot of it is prediction, um, and and a lot of factors come into my head when I think about it. Most notably, they played one up top in Copenhagen. Daryl Murphy started, and then Shane Long came on, if memory serves. I'd be tempted to go two up top for the return leg, get Murphy and Long on, just to to cause a bit of problems for the Danish defence. 
Um, the, the, the issue with that is it potentially opens you up a lot more um, and gives a bit more freedom to the likes of Ericsson, uh, Poulsen, Cornelius, etc., whoever uh, Denmark choose to start with. Um, and I think that's the problem is even when Ericsson isn't on form, as we saw in the first leg, you've got someone like Simon Kiar at the back who is a very good ball-playing defender. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, I would like to see Ireland go out and attack it, but given what's at stake, I don't blame them in the same <laughs> breath for, for being a little bit cautious. No, I think they'll be uh, defensive, defensively resilient as always. Was it, who was it? Was it the Denmark midfielder? Delaney, Thomas Delaney, was it? He likened yes. trying to, to break Ireland down in that first leg to opening a can of baked beans with your bare hands. So... Uh, he uh, he appreciates just how hard it is to score against Ireland. Um, I think we'll see that again in that second leg. But yes, I wonder if they've got enough to just just nick it to get that performance and, uh, and do what needs to be done to get them through to the World Cup. It would be fantastic to see. It'd be a shame, I think, if Ireland didn't make it. Um, we've got a question here from John, who says on Twitter: Is it a good or bad thing that the World Cup is without Chile, Netherlands, USA, and now potentially the likes of Italy and Ireland? Um, what should make that, Nico? Could that be a good thing, seeing some of these these big nations with these fantastic fans missing from the World Cup? You know, it's never a good thing when people have to miss out on football. And we, we like to see, you know, the, the iconic fans go to the tournaments and sing and have a good time and, and enjoy their football and the festival of football, the thing that can, you know, bring us together under, under one idea. But, you know, at the same time, there are some nations going that you know i don't think have necessarily gone all that often previously some arab nations i think saudi arabia is going i think tunisia is going um morocco so you know there there will be all sorts of fans there and it's unfortunate that some of those people have to miss out especially chile um i had written something on on them and sort of how they are you know the model of being one of the the better international setups and you know over the past like 10 to 15 years obviously they've fallen short of that recently but um but yeah you know there are there are replacements there. Mm. Uh, Packed Mouse on Twitter says, uh, which team would you miss the most? I think I'd miss Ireland for personal reasons also because I think the fans were so fantastic. We saw that Euro 2016. Italy as well. It seemed unthinkable almost to have a World Cup without the Azzurri, the four-time winners. Um, there's also a question here from Adam on Twitter who says, who are the favourites to win the World Cup? Now we almost know every team that's qualified. Are there any sort of early predictions who we can see winning? Uh, are we thinking... One of the European teams like a Belgium and France are always seen as up there among the favourites. Maybe the South Americans, Argentina, Brazil. Chris, is there anyone who you'd uh, like to stick a fiver on this early? Oh, wow. Uh, I don't think Belgium will do it because I don't like Roberto Martinez. Not like as a person, I mean, just as a coach. I don't think he's, mm. uh, he's that good. Uh, Kevin De Bruyne doesn't seem to, to like him either, apparently. Seems to have yeah. had words for him about his tactics. Is that right? That's yeah, and that's my my rule for life. If Kevin doesn't like them, um, neither do I. <sighs> Germany and France jump out when I think of, of potential. But then saying that Spain were fantastic against Costa Rica the other day, and, and I know what people will say, "Oh, it's Costa Rica," but still, um, yeah, I think possibly France or Germany. Um, but Brazil, I was going to say Brazil is a dark horse, but that sounds so moronic because like it's Brazil. But do, do you understand what I mean? I feel like. Maybe they're not in that conversation just because of how 2014 and, and Copper America's ended for them. Yeah. But I feel like they could just... When you're not expecting it from Brazil, I feel like that's when they're at the best, maybe. 
I would agree with a lot of what Chris said there. I think, you know, it's unfortunate because Belgium is going through a period where this is sort of a golden golden generation with them, with Moussa Dembele, Kevin De Bruyne, Dries Mertens. Like, talent is just overflowing. And to, to see that wasted um, with a coach that maybe is as inept as Roberto Martinez, a little bit sad. Um, but I'll have to go with, with um, maybe, I think France is a good shout, but I'm pulling for Spain because that's the team I root for. And I think that they'll probably do pretty well. From Mark Wilmot as well, from uh, from Mark Wilmot's Roberto Martinez. I know, and how how he got the the job at Cote d'Ivoire, which is my second favorite internet, just beyond me. I don't think he'll have that for long. Hervernard, after Hervernard embarrassed him at the weekend. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Before we go, as lovely as all that international football chat was, um, we should probably talk some other news from around the world of football. Uh, one of the big pieces of news, um, which I can now put in the title of this podcast, which is great, is that Gareth Bale is apparently up for sale. Chris, uh, Real Madrid have apparently run out of patience with the Welsh stars' injuries. He's, of course, suffered another one recently, um, a calf injury on international duty. Uh, which it seems to have ruled him out once again for an extended period of time. I think it's something like 24 injuries he suffered at Real Madrid in total, uh, which apparently, according to AS, uh, the daily sports newspaper in Spain, means that uh, the rumours are Real Madrid could be selling him next summer. He's apparently only played 50, 55% of available minutes due to uh, due to these injuries. Um, and Real Madrid could be ready to cut their losses what do you make of that, Chris? Any uh, any truth potentially in that that Real Madrid could want to sell Gareth Bale next summer? It kind of kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I think it's one of those situations where there is enough evidence for it to make sense, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Um, his injury record is a concern, and I think in part is a consequence of his game and the way that he plays, and also the way that his body is developed at Real Madrid. If you look at him. When he was at Spurs, he was a little bit more lanky, feels like the wrong word, but he was almost a little bit more lean. Whereas at Real Madrid, he's, he really has put muscle on and become uh, a much thicker athlete. And that is is in, invariably when these kind of injuries that he suffers occurs. Um, the, the thing with him as well is as good a player as he is, and I think to a certain degree, you saw this with Wayne Rooney, there's not a huge market for players of that calibre um, that will also appeal to the player at the same time. Uh, you look maybe at Manchester United, they might see him as a uh, a great candidate to round things off, but that, again, is a huge sum of money for them to spend. It's probably breaking their transfer record again. Spurs, you know, if you look maybe to sell back for nostalgia, there's not a chance Daniel Levy pays anything close to what Real Madrid want. Um <laughs> 
and PSG have, have really kind of, you know, uh, spunked their load on, on marquee players, so they're not going to um, look to do that again. So he's in a very difficult position. I can see him hanging around personally. I think he's got a, a while left before he comes back to England at some point. Um, so, yeah, it's. I don't see his injury problems alleviating anytime soon, if I'm also uh, very honest. And, and that's a shame because he's a, a wonderful footballer. Hmm. He's just come back to Spurs, all is forgiven. But as you say, uh, would, you, would you take speak- him back? Genuine question, would you take him back? I think it would depend on the on the price. As you mentioned there, um, it's probably not very realistic to expect him to come back to Spurs, that Spurs would be able to make that deal happen, especially with the uh, the stadium costs and all that uh, sort of coming into play Where would now. he play? I think if you've got a player like that, I think... Pochettino would always want him and there's always a way to accommodate someone like that but I think it'd be interesting to see how he'd fit into that team now um, but I think it is more likely that he'd go to Manchester United who you know with Ed Woodward there they're always looking for a marquee signing um, potentially likes of Chelsea as well uh, you can see someone uh, you can see a club of that making a move for him or as you say PSG which might be slightly un- unrealistic given how much they've spent on assembling that front three they've got at the moment so the Premier League is probably the, the most likely destination one of those big clubs um, I think you know this is going to be the start now of that transfer saga that no doubt is going to drag on all the way until next summer um, should we get even more spurious Nico and talk about who could potentially replace him uh, as AS have written up in their article today uh, a list of alternatives who could replace Bao if Real Madrid do indeed decide to sell him next summer. Um, they've pinpointed the likes of Harry Kane, hmm, strangely enough, uh, Deli Ali as well. It's almost as if uh, they saw it as an audition in that Champions League game against Spurs a few weeks ago. Uh, Eden Hazard as well, a player who's always linked with Madrid, has been for the last three or four years. Um, we've also got Neymar. Uh, we spoke about those issues earlier that may see him... Uh, potentially leave PSG, or I'm not sure how realistic that is. Uh, out of some of those players, is there anyone you could realistically see replacing Bao at Real Madrid? Anyone who uh, who could fit that profile? It's weird because, <clears throat> and I'm not blaming this on you, I think, but none of the none of the players that you mentioned, I think, or rather very few of the players that you mentioned are actual quote-unquote replacements for Bale. Because yes. I think if you look at Bale as a player, he's a he's a really good uh, dribbler. He's a powerful dribbler with a great shot and the ability to create things sort of in one-on-one situation, one-on-one situations in the wide areas. He can also come inside and create. Um, Harry Kane is more of a replacement or a, you know a, a similar fit to like Benzema, and I don't think they have any. Uh, plans to do that. Deli Ali is like a second striker, like a like a more of a number ten, I guess we're gonna put it that way. But he's more of a central midfielder than he is uh, a wide player. Aiden Hazard, I know he's gonna forever be linked to, to Real Madrid because of his performances and because of the way he plays. But the thing about him is that he, well, I don't think he'd fit very well at all into the Real Madrid system if he did go because of the way he plays. He's a very he requires the ball at his feet in order to create something. His off-ball movement is terrible. I would be surprised if he, you know, if you look at all the goals he scored in his career, if very many of them would have been because of, you know, any particular clever off-ball movement. And that's really what the Real Madrid system does, is that they kind of depend on their, or at least more recently, it kind of depend on Carvajal and, and Marcelo to, to deliver a certain degree of service in the box. And then the off-ball movement of Benzema and Ronaldo, which is second to none, uh, bangs in a lot of goals. So 
of the replacements that you mentioned, I don't think there are too many that are a viable one. Um, and at, like you mentioned, he's only played 55% of the games at Real Madrid. So would they really need like a quote unquote replacement for Bale? Because he hasn't been that big of a, I don't know, influencer in, in their side. So I think if I were Real Madrid and I were to sell Bale and have that extra cash, um, I would go after Neymar because I think it would be it would fit in with sort of the mantra of that club. You know, they like to buy marketable players. He's the mar- most marketable player in the world. He's very well liked. It's his dream to go there and stuff like that. I would also look at Kylian Mbappe um, because, you know, not I think a lot of people have genuinely overlooked PSG. They had a summer where they brought in Neymar, Mbappe, and others in in one summer. I mean, that that's incredible. They might have done some shady things to circumvent the laws of FFP, but in terms of just pure player acquisition, I mean, that's amazing. So, you know, I, I think the the search for a Gareth Bale replacement will go on and hopefully hopefully to you there are that none of those replacements are, are Spurs players. Yes. Uh fingers are firmly crossed. Um it is interesting though, you know, obviously since moving to you, you know one player I didn't mention actually sorry cool, Adam cool. I think I think is a really good Gareth uh, Bale replacement get ready for this mm. Musa Sissoko I think I think Spurs would <laughs> oh yeah they can have him <laughs> Jesus 10 million he's yours uh, maybe there's a swap deal we can do that um, but is since he's moved there it's 2013 I believe he, he moved to, to Real Madrid for 83 million pounds I think it was the world record at the time <laughs> I don't want to say he hasn't filled his, fulfilled his potential because he was obviously uh, he was obviously vital in those first two seasons. Uh, the trophies is one of the club. You can't argue with that. But there is that sense that maybe he hasn't fully lived up to to what he could achieve at that club. Obviously, if he doesn't leave next summer and he does come back from injury, um, the jury's still out on that. But it does lead to a question from Luke Dore here on Twitter who says, what player who never reached their potential would you have liked to have seen done so? Uh, he would have loved to have seen Pato or Adriano fulfill the hype. Um, Chris, is there any players who you've got that tinge of sadness that they never quite lived up to the potential they were built up to have? Sure, Lamiobi. <laughs> sure, really? That's the... I mean, that's the thing. I was, You know what it was? I was watching... Uh... Someone did a uh, compilation of all his goals for Newcastle. And it got me back to thinking kind of when he first uh, broke through and all that. And he was actually really highly rated. And and when you watch um, when he was younger and a little bit more, you know, lanky and things like that, you see why. Um, But I think I'm trying to think of players that that really did suffer with injury. Yeah, I'm wondering. Um, Some of the ones that are jumping out to me as I'm thinking about it is the likes of Robinho who um, obviously moved from Real Madrid to Manchester City in 2008, but never quite uh, never quite hit the heights in the Premier League. And after that, uh, Joe Cole as well. He was someone who was sort of built up to be this savour of English football and never uh, quite hit that. Nico, is there anyone who you felt like never filled their potential? Kakar is another one who sort of springs to mind. Because of that huge, I was going to throw Gaza in there as well. Yeah, this, is... but, but he but he won a Ballon d'Or, so it's oh, like, of course. But know. it's kind of like, you know, he had that peak of his career, but it was almost. Uh, it felt like it should have been longer because he made that move to Real Madrid. He was sort of. I'll tell you. I'll tell you some players that are, I fear may never achieve their potential. Oh, it's an interesting um, twist. I like it. I've, Go on. I've 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 really I've really enjoyed ever since I started watching him a few years ago. Uh, James Ward Prowse. 
And I think there are certain elements of his game that I think, uh, you know, you need to work on and maybe move on. And I'd like to see more consistency out of his game at the, at the current stage. He's at Adam, Adama Traore was a freak at the Barcelona Academy. Uh, and I, I don't think he'll ever achieve anything close to what we projected. And he still has crazy numbers. It's just he won't ever do it because there's no dynamism to his game. Probably Balotelli, I think, is probably one that, a lot of people would land on because you watch his old man That's city uh, highlights and it's like he was an old striker when he was young and then he regressed it's like his movement went out the door his work rate went out the door so i don't know i'd like to see him return to to, to the levels that he once had so probably mario balotelli then mario balotelli is a great show actually um i just felt like with kaka there's i thought his peak is his sort of reigning time was going to be longer he made that move to Real Madrid 56 million he was the most expensive player in the world for a couple of weeks I think Cristiano Ronaldo completely overshadowed that never quite worked out for him at Real Madrid and never sort of really got back to his peak after that so I'm not saying he didn't fulfill his potential necessarily but I just feel like he could have almost been more what are you what are you talking about mate he played for Orlando City he definitely sorry yes of course of course I did forget definitely filled apologies um Finally, we've got a question here from Dara White, who said, what did yous think of the Alan Shearer documentary on dementia? This went out on the BBC last night, Football Dementia and Me, talking about the links between heading uh, and dementia, uh, the disease in football. Um, I don't believe you, do you guys watch this. Nico, I don't think you would have been able to watch this. Chris, I, I think you missed this one. I did, unfortunately. Yeah, I was uh, busy working. It's an interesting one because um, I don't think it was the most insightful documentary I've ever seen. It was slightly perfunctory, but yet interesting. Alan Shearer sort of investigating the links between heading the ball, specifically in, in practice, in training, um, the repetitive sort of nature of that and what impact it can have um, uh, potentially on brain activity. There was sort of... Uh, different trials and different scientists he was talking to to try and examine those, those impacts and the conclusion he came to was that needs to be more research needs to be more to be done it is quite scandalous how nothing has been done in 10 to 15 years um, since this link was first established there doesn't seem to be a rush to do it by either FIFA uh, or UEFA or the FA who seem to as the documentary suggests sort of taking this upon their upon themselves to, to start the research and start trying to establish whether there is a link um, it was interesting because there was talk of banning it in youth football it seems to be something that's been done in the US less so because of the worry of heading the ball necessarily having um, long-term impacts but more sort of the challenging for the ball in that in that scenario heading the ball could lead to, to heads clashing could lead to elbows could lead to to bigger impacts which therefore could have more detrimental effects but it was very interesting nonetheless I think you know, it wasn't the most revolutionary conclusion it came to, but there should be more research given. It's obviously shone a spotlight on it, which I think is helpful. And obviously the BBC are promoting it quite heavily today and sort of uh, trying to not put pressure on, but try and highlight that there does need to be research, does need to be work done there. So, uh, yeah, good to see. Uh, guys, thank you so much for listening. Until Thursday, we'll be back with the Q&A as always. Nico, where can people find you? They can find me at Nico underscore O Morales on Twitter. They can also come Saturday, find me on a plane oh, to, to, to England. Touching so. down in the UK, uh, just in time. So for if, you wanna, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to hang out, meet up, folks, listeners, 
you know, let me know. Are you can do one of those meetups like uh, Logan. Is it going to be like Logan Paul in Dubai when uh, fifty thousand <laughs> people? Is that what we can expect? Yeah, I think that's 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 the amount of people that will show up yeah. at the airport. I like that. with signs for me. Yep, <laughs> <gonna be it. laughs> uh, Chris, where can people find you until Thursday? Uh, in your hearts, minds, and souls, hopefully. Oh, beautiful beautiful stuff uh guys you can find me specifically on twitter adam boltwood until thursday have a bloody great week and come on you boys in green mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market